I just announced that, that Fred Sulis had died this week, and I wanted to include that in the beginning of the sermon. But I think it may be uh, an important event that occurred, that Fred may have been used for a particular purpose, <clears throat> and I hope that we see that before the day is over. God does not do anything without reason, without purpose. He does not allow things to happen by chance in our lives because we are his called out ones. He numbers the hairs of our head. So he knows intimately about each and every one of us. And certainly with Fred. And I do not think that he allows the death of one of his chosen ones to happen without uh, a certain reason, purpose, plan in mind. Sometimes those things happen here and there through the, through the year and have over the years in the church. But God was working with each and every one of those individuals. Hundreds, perhaps thousands have died since this era of the church began. And he had a purpose in the life of each one. That they might be a part of the kingdom of God and to be a part of the bride of Christ when he returns. So in each and every one, he had a specific plan and purpose in their lives, no matter when they died, that he was working out, and in many cases, and probably in every case, uh, he allowed it, passed on it, sometimes it's been tragic deaths, not those that were in the sense of normal, but through accidents and various ways, people have died sometimes suddenly. But do you think God did not see those things coming and know of them? And was he not working out things in the lives of those people in one way or another to ensure that they would be where they needed to be at the time they need to be there? He loves us that much. So nothing happens without him passing on it or allowing it. And sometimes things are difficult for us to understand. And yet God knows what he is doing always, and he has a time and a purpose for all things. That's even mentioned in the book of Ecclesiastes, the time to be born, the time to die, the time to build, the time to tear down, a time for everything under the sun. We must believe and trust God to know that he has a plan and a purpose in mind for each and every one of us, and that our lives are not just happenstance. If trials, troubles, and tribulations come upon us, there is a reason for those. As he works with each and every one of us as individuals to lead us, to guide us into the right attitude, the right mode, the right approach to him and to each other, he is always involved in our lives. Sometimes we need to invite him to be involved, however, <clears throat> because there are times when he might pass by, we do have our part in making sure that he stays involved in our lives. Remember the case where Christ was walking on the water and the disciples were rowing hard and he was going to walk right on by and let them continue to struggle and get to shore when they could. But they invited him into the boat. And only upon invitation did he come. 
So we might be going on through life and struggling and rolling hard and maybe not getting as there as fast as we think we ought to, and maybe sometimes we're not tapping into him as much as we ought to be, because he makes clear the part of the relationship is our invitation to him. We need to invite him on a regular basis, if not a daily basis, to be involved in our lives, to guide direct to the leaders and the steps that we take to walk as he walked. Because on our own, our feet will lead us off in many, many different directions. And with our own minds, with our own human nature, we tend to go our way and do our thing. So on a daily basis, we need to ask him to lead and guide our steps to walk as he walked. So it's not that he's just always there. He is always there. But he does not always get involved in everything we do. I mean, think about it. Some of the things you think and some of the things you do, he has been involved in, I'll just bet you. Because that's your own mind leading you in your own direction. So we need to invite him. Come help me. Come lead me. Come guide me. Now, I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians 11. <clears throat> Here Paul gives some instruction because the Corinthians were coming up to Passover, and they obviously did not have all the right attitudes that they ought to have. Let's pick it up in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, he's introducing the subject of the Passover here, and he explains that we are not to eat the lamb, the bitter herbs, and so on, of the Passover, but that the symbols had been changed. The Corinthians were a partying group of people as a, as a culture. And any excuse to get together and party and, and have any kind of a, an orgy you might desire or they might desire, they did. So when God's holy days were introduced, they wanted to keep them in the same form and fashion that they'd always kept all their feasts and parties. So they had to be instructed. <clears throat> you don't do it your way, you do it God's way. For in eating, everyone takes before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunk. So they were eating, drinking, and being merry and approaching the Passover. Party time. And they were being selfish about it as well. Now, we were instructed recently that by Paul, I think it was in Thessalonians or wherever it was, Philippians, I forget exactly where, to have fervent love one for another, to be thinking of each other, to be doing for one another. And that was the, that's the attitude we should have at this time coming into the Passover service, or Passover season, and not be being selfish as they were. <clears throat> so he says, what? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Do you have to come here and party in front of each other and not even share? Or despise you, the church of God, and shame them that have not? So the haves were busy enjoying themselves and their bounty, 
and putting shame upon those who didn't have much. Pretty much the way it's going in this country right now. Shall I praise you in this? What, what am I going to say? Shall I praise you? I praise you not. I imagine he delivered this pretty strongly. Well, it's, it's a letter written. He wasn't speaking it, but he's putting it pretty straightforward here. For I have received of the eternal that which also I delivered to you, that the Lord Emmanuel, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take ye, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. So he's saying you're not here to eat lamb. You're not here to party and get drunk. You're here to eat the bread in remembrance of me. Because remember he said that his, the bread was his body. It symbolizes it. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament of my blood. So he did eat the Passover that night himself. But he said, I'm changing the symbols. Henceforth, you do it this other way. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the eternal's death till he come. Now, that's not saying we can do it once a month or once a week or whatever. We're showing his death. That an anniversary is once a year, not every week or two weeks or once a month or whatever we might choose. He tells us how often to do it. Wherefore, whomsoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the eternal unworthily or in carelessness or in uh, Laodiceanism or lackadaisically or unthoughtfully shall be guilty of the body and blood of the eternal. Now that's pretty serious. If we don't do it in the right attitude and with the right approach, then he is conferring the guilt of Christ's death upon us. So our attitude in approaching the Passover is very, very important. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Now, I have encountered people in past years, decades ago perhaps, who would say, well, I've examined myself and I am unworthy, and I should not therefore take the Passover. Well, if you and I examine ourselves, we'll always find ourselves unworthy. We'll always find ourselves still sinful in some form or fashion. Does that mean none of us should ever take the Passover? No, he said examining your, examine yourself, have the right attitude, and then do eat and drink. For he that eats and drinks irreverently or unfittingly eats and drinks damnation to himself, not dividing the eternal's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many have died. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the eternal, that we should not be condemned with the world. So something is supposed to change with the Passover so that we are not condemned with the rest of the world, but that we're saved out of it. <clears throat> the Passover, in other words, should make a difference. It should make a difference in our relationship with God and in his assessment with us and his mercy and forgiveness upon us. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, 
wait for one another. Don't just everybody sit down and enjoy what he's got and have himself a big drink. Uh, and if any man hunger, let him eat at home. You're not there to, to eat a meal when you come for the Passover. Not in the New Testament. Eat at home, that you come not together to condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. So he said, this, this you need to consider <clears throat> right now, and other things and other attitudes I'll work on when I arrive. So there was more that he had to say that he did not address in this letter. Now, let's go back to verse 28. I, I did an overview of this for a purpose and a reason. It does seem that it's been uh, a thing that we do to address the Passover before we arrive on the 14th day of the month. So that a week or two or three or four before the Passover, the ministry will, at least one of them, probably address the issue of examining ourselves ahead of time. But there's not been no set pattern for that, has there? There's been no set time for that in particular. It's just whenever the ministry felt moved to give a Passover preparation sermon, or a sermonette in some cases. So it was, in a way, willy-nilly, whenever, whatever, with no plan or purpose particularly in mind. And I wonder if that should be the case. I wonder if there's not a specific time that we should begin examining ourselves. Now, you might say, <coughs> and probably rightfully so in a very broad terminology, <coughs> that we ought to examine ourselves every day. So that after the Passover, you know, 10, 12, 15, 20 days after the Passover, we're examining ourselves. And indeed, we should examine ourselves daily in a very broad sense. But I don't think that by this he means that we should say, Father, I know the Passover is coming in 347 days, and I want to be examining myself and preparing for that. You know, our daily walk and our daily life with God certainly requires examination of our attitudes as we go through the day. Some people don't do it on a daily basis in preparation for Passover for a year. Some arrive at the service, maybe 10, 15 minutes before it starts, and perhaps begin examining themselves very quickly as they fall through some of the scriptures that have to do with the Passover. <clears throat> that 10 or 15 minute preparation might be most of the preparation they make. Is that enough? Is that what God intended? Some of us begin to think about it maybe a week or two or three or four beforehand, saying, well, I need to start preparing for Passover. But it's sort of a, when we think of it, thing, and we all do it differently, don't we? Everyone probably has a totally different approach, or maybe not totally different, but they pick it up at a different time, it just strikes them, you know, it's only three days to Passover, I need to examine my attitude, or it's two weeks or three weeks or four weeks before, so I need to think about this. And then they more or less get to it. Is that the way it ought to be? <clears throat> I bring this up because a Bible study at New Moon the other night, Thursday night, 
I broke the subject of the first month, and we went through quite a few scriptures on it. Uh, and I want to use that as a framework and a background for this, this sermon, because I think there's much more to it than what I covered the other night. Uh, I think we can nail it down better than I did then, and I think there's more meaning there to be grasped. I, I did it in a sense in a general way, and I think we can add some detail and perhaps see a clearer picture than we did the other night. So those of you who were here at Bible study, bear with me if you will, uh, because we're going to go through some of the same scriptures, if not all of them. <clears throat> but I think we can begin to put a story together here that is perhaps uh, more specific information about examining ourselves than we have had here before. And it might be, in that sense, new knowledge or new understanding of what God has in mind that comes through very clearly in these scriptures. Now, I looked up in PC Study Bible, first month, and found all the scriptures in the Bible that have to do with the first month. And there were, I don't know, 20, 25 of them. Quite a few, and some of them seemed very pertinent to the things that occur in the first month having to do with Passover and so on. And since then, I've looked up all the other months, uh, second month, third month, fourth month, and so on, to see what might be there, to see if I was making a case for something that did not exist. And when you examine those other months, you find them mentioned several times, not nearly so many times as the first month, but mentioned several times, except for the seventh month, which is by far and away the second most mentioned month of the year, because it contains trumpets, atonement, and Feast of Tabernacles. So it's mentioned quite frequently, <clears throat> uh, almost as many times as the first month, because those are the two key months for the Holy Days. All the Holy Days fall within those two months, except Pentecost. So they're very key months in God's plan for mankind, His purpose, His Holy Day calendar, and all those things. And they revolve around the first and seventh months. But today, since we're coming upon Passover, I want to focus on the first month, not the seventh month. I think it's timely, and I think that some of the events that we have been a part of and witnessed these last few days may also be involved. I, for one, have never really focused that much on the first day of the first month of the new year. Uh, my focus has generally been more upon Passover itself and preparing for Passover and the things that we marked on the calendar had to do for, with Passover. I would uh, delineate the first day of the first month on purpose so that we would know when to start to count the Passover. So we would determine the first month, first day of the first month, that is, New Year's Day. Then we would count 14 and get what we were after. That was when does the Passover fall. So that was the key in focusing on the first month, like the Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread, not on the first day of the first month. But we'll find that many events in the Bible 
or quite, I, I say many, quite a few, occurred on the first day in the first month, and it is instructive to examine those, see what they were, and what type of events occurred on the first day of the first month. Now, not all of them, completely and entirely, have to do with what I'm going to get into, but most of them do. And they seem to tie in quite well. Now, why did I focus this year for the first time on the first day of the first month? I think there are two primary reasons. One is that God tells us in Joel 2 that he would give us the former and the latter rains on the, in the first month. Now, we see the events of Joel and other prophecies beginning to come to pass before our very eyes. So we're focusing on that, thinking, well, maybe this is the year that God will bring those former and latter rains or blessings in the first month. And if not, we'd say, oh, no, but maybe we have to wait another year. But I was in a hopeful mood and approach, let's put it that way. So I began to focus on the first month, but not so much on the first day of that month, except for the fact that we had two people who were very, very ill. One being Jean Terry, who's sitting here today. Uh, she is feeling much better than she was a little earlier. Still ancient, but uh, feeling much better. I, I'm kidding the hoary head there, Jean. Uh, I'm glad to see you're sitting here, and I'm glad to see you're feeling better. But you and I both know that two weeks ago, you were pretty much at the point of death and kept telling me, I think I'm going to die, I think I'm going to die. And this affected me a great deal because I kept thinking, maybe if Jean lives till the first day of the first month, because it, it was dicey whether she would live that long or not. Wouldn't you say that, Jean? Yeah. So I was saying, I wasn't saying, well, maybe she'd wait till Passover. I was hoping she'd last till the first day. And Fred Sulis was in pretty much the same boat, perhaps even, well, I, I wouldn't say two weeks ago. I, I think Gene was as close almost as he was to die. But I kept thinking, well, maybe Fred can last till the first month, the first day, and maybe God will then heal him on the first day of the first month. Well, that was my hope. That was my prayer. Nonetheless, your will, not mine, be done. I always tried to put that caveat in there. But I was hoping that, so it made me focus on the first day of the first month for the first time because of those dire illnesses. Well, Fred, Jean didn't make it when she's here today and feeling much better. But Fred didn't. He died just short of on Wednesday morning, and then the first day of the first month began Thursday evening. So we had him buried by Wednesday evening before sundown, so it was some, some 24 hours, well, probably 36 hours, roughly, from the time he died until the first day of the first month began. Now that troubled me to some degree, and yet I tried to submit my will to that of God. Sometimes the things I might hope and the things I think he might do are not what he, in his better judgment and overseeing of the whole plan, might do. He knows exactly what he's doing, 
why he's doing it that way, and how he is doing it. He has purposes that are far beyond our grasp, comprehension, and understanding. So Fred is not here with us today. He is awaiting the resurrection. But did his death impart an opportunity and an understanding to the rest of us that might prove to be very valuable. I think that may be the case. And I think that God may have allowed this timing of this to occur at such a time and in such a way as to cause me and us to focus on the first day of the first month in a way that we never have before. And he may have allowed him to die short of it for a purpose as well. Now let's go back to Genesis 8. And here you have the story of, uh, of Noah, all that he went through in building the ark, and how the rains came and people were drowned. And then you have the time when the waters are assuaging from the face of the earth, and it's coming time, near time to come out of the ark. So I won't go through the whole story, but the ark rested in 8 and verse 4 in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month. So that would have been later on during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles had not been instituted in Genesis 8 as well. It was not instituted until Exodus and Leviticus when they came out of Egypt. The Passover was established in the other holy days. But it is interesting that it rested there on the seventh month. I think because in the seventh month is the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day, which picture the time when the people at the end of the earth will have a new beginning and a new life, if you will, in the millennium, and then certainly in the great white throne judgment, the last great day, all these people who had died as a result of their sin and the flood will come back to life. So the ark rested on the mountain in the seventh month, just as those people will have an opportunity to live and yet rest from the evil and the sin and the terrible effects that it had in their lives in the time pictured by the seventh month. So I don't think it's simply by chance that that occurred. Anyway, as the waters went down, he sent the raven out, and then he sent the dove out, and the raven stayed away, the, the dove came back, and, and then he waited another week. Verse 12, and he stayed yet other seven days and sent forth the dove, which returned not again to him anymore. And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. So he took the cover off, feeling quite safe at that point because the doves could come back. He waited seven days, and the, dry, the ground outside the ark was dry. Well, this was a good sign. Now, he didn't come out of the ark at that time. 
which I find interesting in the light of where we are about to go. It says that in the second month, on the seventh and twentieth day of the month, was the earth dry, and God spoke to Noah, saying, Go forth. So he didn't go out of the ark immediately when he saw dry ground, but he waited actually over a month later before it was dry enough that God said, okay, it's time to go out. Now the sequence of days here does not completely match the Passover season, but there's an element in here that I think is interesting in that regard. When he took the lid off the ark on the first day of the first month, that was a beginning of a preparation to come out. You know, when a, a chicken hatches and prepares to come out, he begins pecking the top of the egg. And then he continues to peck, and sooner or later, he comes on out of the egg and as a chicken. Well, they began preparations to come out, but they did not come out immediately. Now, understand that we begin preparations for Passover when? Dare I say the first day of the first month, we begin the preparations, and then we have basically, we would have two weeks to examine ourselves and prepare. Is that when we should begin the formal examination process? Now, I know this is, it would be very dicey to base that on this alone, but there's a preparatory statement here, and I think we'll find more information as we go that might tend to uh, cement this down. So on the first and first, they certainly began a preparation. That much we can see here. So let's leave that and see if we find more. Let's go to Exodus 12. Exodus 12. Now here we're going to find that God says, This month shall be to you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now we can determine that, and I don't want to take the time to do it now, that uh, when the springtime would come and the barley was to be ripe, that's the time of year he was talking about which would be the first month after the spring equinox, or at that time of the 360-day calendar, at the time of the spring equinox would be the first day of the first month in a 360-day year. That's another story. But he makes it clear to Moses and Aaron that this is the beginning of months. It'll be the first month to you. Now, there are those who argue that creation occurred in the fall because what would Adam and Eve eat? if it were in the winter or the spring or the summer, and there were not crops ripe as yet. I think that's rather shallow reasoning. Uh, I'm not saying that it did not occur in the fall. Perhaps it did. But in the Garden of Eden, there was always something ripe to eat. And it even says in Revelation that when God's kingdom is here, that there will be trees that are ripened every month of the year. So there's always something to eat. So to base when the creation was on that, I think is faulty reasoning, and not necessarily so. Or maybe it did occur in the fall, but it is not because of that logic uh, that it would have occurred. But whenever it was, when he established Israel coming out of Egypt, 
as a nation, he made it clear that the first month would be in the springtime, the time they came out of Egypt. So New Year's Day would occur every year in the spring, not in January 1st in the wintertime. Mr. Armstrong always made a point of that, that when new life is coming forth, the, the, everything is being renewed, is the time of the new year. Speak to the congregation, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. So they selected the lamb to be killed for a Passover service on the tenth day of the first month. And then they killed it on the fourteenth day of the month. So the first month then becomes very important, first month of the year, in terms of the Passover, which we realize uh, translates to Christ's sacrifice as the Passover in the New Testament. So it was looking forward to that time. So it makes this a very important time. I don't want to spend more time here other than the comment that as the Passover approached, they did certain preparations. The one mentioned here in particular is the selecting of the land. It had to be without blemish, uh, a kid of that year, uh, whether it be a sheep or a goat, it could have been either one, but it had to it had certain earmarks, certain classification that it had to be in. It had to be, in that sense, perfect, even as Christ our Savior was perfect. And that preparation began with that selection on the 10th. Now that has, that lamb then would be killed on the 14th, and the death angel, or the death of the firstborn, the Christ himself, not an angel perhaps, did, indicated that on the 14th at midnight, they would be passed over. Their sin would be passed over in symbolism. So that sin was removed. That's about as important as you can get because the wages of sin is death. And we are all scheduled to die and to die eternally if somehow the penalty for our sin is not removed. So that makes the first month very, very important. There's no more important month that there could be than that. All right, let's go to chapter 40. And here we're going to begin to hone in on a very important thing. Exodus 40. The Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month shall you set up the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. Now, prior to this chapter, they had been preparing and building. God had given instruction. The ark, uh, the, the, uh, the tabernacle, and all those preparations had been being made from the time they came out of Egypt when God began to instruct them to do that until this time. Now things were in readiness. Now when did they set it up? They began on the first day of the first month. Now let's examine that preparation a little bit. It says, you'll set up the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation, and you shall put therein the ark of the testimony, and cover the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table, and set in order the things that are to be set in order upon it. So part of the assembling, or setting up, 
had to do with setting everything in order. Now, does that begin to smack of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11? Put your lives in order. Put your attitudes in order. Examine yourself. Check yourself out. Get things ready. And that's exactly what God said to do on the first day of the first month. He could have chosen any day of the year, but this is what he chose. You shall set the altar of gold for the incense before the ark of the testimony, and then he goes on down about the hanging of the door and, and all the things they did. Let's skip down to verse 9 and not read all that detail for my purposes today. You shall hallow it, end of the verse, all the vessels thereof, and it shall be holy. So the purpose here in setting up and getting everything in order, setting it aside and consecrating it as holy. Now what is holy? Holy is the opposite of unholy. Clean is the opposite of unclean. Righteous is the opposite of unrighteous. So here they were to make it holy as opposed to unholy. Now, should we approach the Passover with holiness or unholiness, clean or unclean? You see the close proximity of the meaning here to the Passover itself. Because they knew they were to keep the Passover on the 14th day, but they were to set up the tabernacle on the first day of the first month. Well, was this just the only time that they would do that? Just that one time after it was ready and prepared? We'll see. Verse 13, you shall put upon Aaron the holy garments and anoint him and sanctify him that he may minister to me in the priest's office. So it was the time when they set it up, put everything in order, that they were also to cleanse and prepare the high priest so that he could do the things that needed to be done in the ark and in the temple, the tabernacle, that had to do with holiness. So it's important to get not only the physical part of it ready, but to get the people who would administer it ready as well. And you should bring his sons and clothe them with coats, and then they were to put on the clean clothes. I'll show in Isaiah 52 here again, where it says that we are to put on our holy garments there in, I think, verse 1, and explains about not touching the unclean thing there toward the end of the chapter. And then chapter 53 has to do with Christ and the Passover. A very interesting parallel in Isaiah of putting on clean garments and beginning to prepare before Passover. Now, it doesn't say in Isaiah to do it on the first day of the first month, but it does here. Uh, verse And anoint them, get them ready. Verse 17, And it came to pass in the first month in the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was reared up. So they were traveling when the cloud appeared and, when the, and so on. Uh, they would travel or they would sit if the cloud stood still. But in the second year, they did the very same thing on the first day of the first month. Had they been traveling and it had not been set up, they did the exact same thing the second year that they had done the first year. So it wasn't just that they had hurried up 
to get everything built and ready and then set up on the beginning of the first day of the first month. But even in the second year, they went through the exact same process at the exact same time. Set it up, set it in order, cleanse the priest, do the whole thing, the first year, the second year, and I would be willing to bet that they did it the third year and the fourth year and the fifth year the same way. Because a pattern had been established here. But that was the day that they were to begin to set things in order for the new year and the beginning of the new Holy Day season. I think this passage is very, very instructive toward us, before us. Verse 23, set the bread in order upon it before the eternal. Now we know that Christ made it very clear that his body was the bread. So these are events leading to the Passover that had to do with the ark. Verse 31, Moses and Aaron and his souls washed their hands and their feet thereat. Later on, Christ would establish the washing of the feet. <laughs> washing of the hands does not require near as much humility as bending down and washing someone's feet. So he did not keep both there, but he did establish the foot washing. Verse 34, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Eternal filled the tabernacle. Do we not read in Malachi that Christ will suddenly come to his temple, and his glory will appear and Malachi is very much an end-time book, that he will suddenly appear in his temple. Zechariah 2 says he's going to come and dwell with us. Now we know from scriptures that he is, has his face turned from the church, but he is going to turn it back and shine upon it and suddenly come to his temple. Now let's go back there just for a moment more I think about this, because in chapter 3, well, chapter 2, uh, he's talking about us cleaning ourselves up and doing the things that God wants us to do. And he says in chapter 3, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, a voice crying in the wilderness, Isaiah 40, the idea of John the Baptist preparing the way for Christ, and so on, so there will be an end-time John the Baptist, an end-time Elijah. Those things have not yet occurred. And the eternal whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He's coming to cleanse. He's coming to prepare his people. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and purify the sons of Levi and so on. I wonder, based on what we just read in Exodus 40, if it might not be around Passover time that he does appear. Now Passover is when he actually died and cleansed and purified our sins, right? Everything about his life pointed to Passover and the forgiveness and covering of sin. So here it indicates 
but he will come and purify. Well, purify means get rid of that which is unpure. Cleanse means get rid of that which is unclean. So he's going to make a separation. And then he goes through and shows some of the things that are important to him. Well, we say, well, how are we unclean or unpure? And how do we need purified? He mentions tithing. He mentions wholeheartedness before him. And then he says, those that feared the eternal spoke often one to another, and the eternal hearkened. Verse 16. And he'll think of those people who fear him and speak often of him to one another. He'll think of them when he prepares his jewels. Then shall you return, verse 18, and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serves God and him that serves him not. A delineation will be made. God will purge the rebels, as he says in Ezekiel. Now, if you tie that in with other events in the Bible, would Christ come in the fifth month or the seventh month or the eleventh month? Or would the chances be that if he is to purify and cleanse his people, that he would come at the time of greatest purification and the meaning thereof? That would seem the most logical to me. Now, I don't know what day he has chosen to turn his face back to the church. But I remind you of Isaiah 44. I've quoted that several times recently. Maybe I'll turn back there and read it. The context here is after a message has been going in the desert, and he declares that the people he is setting aside in the desert are his witnesses. You are even my witnesses, he says in chapter 44, verse 8. And just before he introduces Cyrus, who will say to the temple and to the city of Jerusalem, your foundation will be laid, and so on. He says right here in verse 22, well, verse 21, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You shall not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud your transgressions and as a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And what is the day that God delineates as the day of redemption, of forgiveness, of the departure of sin from us? Passover. Now, if you were going to choose, let's say you were in the position of God, and you were going to choose to forgive the people of God, would you do it on the 1st of January? New Year's for the world? Maybe Halloween. Maybe you would, uh, would turn and turn your face back to and begin to bless God's people from 4th of July or Christmas. What day would you pick? What day would God pick to forgive our sin and remove them as a cloud in one day? For me, the most logical would be the Passover, which symbolizes that very thing every year that goes by. Now, he can pick whichever day he wishes. But if I were to give my best guess based on Scripture, I would say Passover. 
Now, maybe he has a surprise for us for whatever purpose he has in mind, and I don't know that that is the case, but it does seem the most logical based on all scripture. But the context here in Isaiah 44 is right at the end of time. Just before Babylon falls, when he tells us to get out of it in chapter 48, verse 20. And Malachi 3 is very much an end time prophecy as well. The time he's preparing his jewels, the time when Moses and Elijah appear in chapter 4. We're beginning to see a bit of a pattern here, I wonder. Now let's go to Numbers 9. I don't want to spend a great deal of time here. I, I did want to at least take a cursory look at each one of these um, so that we have them all included, but not all of them have to do so much with the first day and the first month. Uh, I'm trying to get the numbers here, verse 9, or chapter 9. Uh, but so far we've seen the events of the first month corresponding to the events leading up to Passover. Numbers 9, verse 1, is, And the Eternal spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year, after they were come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the children of Israel also keep the Passover at his appointed season. And then he mentions the 14th. Uh, the fifth verse, and they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month, and even in the wilderness of Sinai. So we're reviewing here what we read in Exodus 12, so we'll skip on from that, showing that it was something that was done year by year. Let's go to Numbers 20. I think we'll find more instruction here in terms of the direction that I'm approaching this from today. Numbers 20, verse 1. Well, they were traveling through the wilderness, as God wanted them to do. Chapter 19, you have the red heifer that had no blemish that was separated, and it was used as a symbol of, as a water of separation, as they sprinkle the water between the two pieces of the heifer. That's up in verse 9. It is a purification for sin. So here we have mentioned just before chapter 20, purification for sin, it's a statute forever, and notice something interesting here in verse 11, he that touches the dead body of any man shall be unclean seven days, purify himself on the third day, and on the seventh day he shall be clean, if he purify not himself the third day, then he's the seventh day, he shall not be clean, and then if someone dies in the tent and you have to drag him out, and the seven days of uncleanness and so on. I will not go through all that, but I think there's some meaning to this. Verse 20, But the man that shall be unclean and shall not purify himself, that soul shall be cut off from among the congregation. Now didn't we read in 1 Corinthians 11 that if we did not examine ourselves and come to have the right attitude, that then Christ's uh, blood would be upon our head. We would not be cleansed. So if we don't go through the purification and the cleansing of attitude and approach before Passover, then it has no meaning for us. Because he has defiled the sanctuary of the eternal. We are the sanctuary, the place where God dwells. And if we don't examine ourselves, as Paul said, then 
we have defiled the church, defiled the sanctuary. And he that touches the water of separation shall be unclean till even. So if someone does not cleanse themselves and we touch them, then we are unclean. Now that's the principle that Paul was using in 1 Corinthians 5 when he found the man who was involved in incest. And they were not all that alarmed by it in the church at Corinth because that was fairly common in that society. Even as in our society today, fornication among teenagers is common. People living together unmarried is quite common. Divorce and remarriage and serial monogamy and all this kind of stuff is quite common. It doesn't raise any eyebrows anymore. Used to it was hush-hush and, oh, is that going on? Now, I didn't mean that it never happened, but it was hush-hush and hid because it was a shameful thing in our society. Now it's just right out in the open. Everybody does it. It's no big deal. Now, that's the way they were in Corinth. It was no big deal when this guy was committing incest. And yet Paul said, he's in the church of God. Now, you put him out, and if any man speaks to him, if any man fellowships with him, if any man has anything to do with him, then they are themselves to be separated out. He was saying, if you have one among you who is unclean, those who associate with it become unclean by association, so they have to be put out as well. It is a very serious matter when one is in such an attitude or type of mode in their lives that is sinful, and we disfellowship them, and you fellowship with them. Now, they are marked publicly as being unclean for whatever reason. Do not touch them. Stay away from them. Do not say, oh, it's okay, I'll talk to them. I won't be polluted. Yes, you will. By the word of God, you will. When that delineation is made, when that mark is put there by Paul or the ministry constituted in this day, there is authority there. And God means business. Paul was merely extrapolating his decision from Numbers 19. Don't touch the unclean thing. Does not Haggai, where it tells us to build a temple, say that the priests are to make a difference between the clean and the unclean? And that the ministry does not tend to do that is the reason the warning is there. So this is an end-time thing at the time to build the temple. We better be on board, and we better know where we are and where I would speak, and we better be clean. Isaiah 52 does go on before the Passover to say, Be you clean that there the vessel shall be eternal. Don't touch the unclean thing. It shall be a perpetual statute to them, verse 21. Verse 22, and whatsoever the unclean person touches shall be unclean. If someone is unclean by reason of sin and attitude, and they touch you, 
I don't mean with their fingers, by letter, by telephone, by conversation, then you become unclean. Should it begin to turn a light on in our heads that we need to stay away from those who are not in agreement, who do not go along with what we feel is correct. If there's an unclean attitude or approach, we need to be very, very careful and not ourselves endanger our own cleanliness before God. Now, I hasten to add, we need to be very careful not to be condemnative and judgmental, because if you want to find uncleanness in any one of us, you can find it. We all sin and come short of the glory of God. So I'm not saying here we ought to suddenly become nosy, watching each other to see if there's any sin in each other. That is not what we're speaking of here. We're to help each other overcome sin. We're, you know, if we're in good standing in that sense and haven't been marked, none of us is totally clean, and that's why we all have to examine ourselves before Passover, because we all have wrong attitudes and, and sins. So we're not to become holier than thou, and whew, I don't want to talk to you, because I know you have a sin. Well, you're going to be a loner if you don't talk to anybody that doesn't have a sin. But what's our attitude? What's our approach? Are we examining ourselves, not each other, to see if we, indeed, be clean before God? Now, some uncleanness in someone becomes so very obvious that there's an overt, outward sin, then the ministry is here to deal with that. In the meantime, we're to be examining not each other, but ourselves. Whatsoever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and the soul that touches it shall be unclean till evening. All right, I wanted to get that background before going to chapter 20. Then came the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, into the desert of Zin in the first month. Now, did they come on the first day of the first month? Uh, it is not clear here that that is the case, but they did come in the first month. The people abode in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. So they'd been on the road for a while at this particular in this setting. And there was no water for the congregation. Now, water is doctrine in biblical symbolism. Uh, good doctrine, good water. And they had none. Now, the church of God, over the last 20, 25 years now, has been dying of thirst of the true water of Christ and true doctrine and understanding of what's going on. Now, we have some basics, but we don't have a lot of the things we need to prepare us for what is coming. Anyway, there was no water for the congregation, and they gathered themselves together against Moses and Aaron. And the people chode with Moses and spoke, saying, Would God that we had died when, the, when our brethren died before the eternal. And why have you brought up the congregation of the eternal into this wilderness that we and our cattle should die there? They brought up their old attitude. You've just brought us into the wilderness to die. Now we in the church have been in a time 
Well, there's not been much word from the eternal throughout the entire church of God. They don't have a clear trumpet voice to tell them what they need to do, how they need to do it, where they need to be, and what they need to be doing. So that water, that understanding, has not been there for the most part. Now, is it ironic, or by happenstance, that Fred Sulich died 36 hours before the first month? Then maybe we should have been, and certainly should be, considering his death, and not imbibing of the attitude of, you brought us out this in this wilderness to die. Does that mean that none would ever die? No, these people have been dying. In fact, Miriam had died before the first month. She was a key figure in early Israel. She died. But God did not bring that whole congregation out there to die. And I think that is emphasized by Fred's death just before the first month. And I think it is with purpose that God allowed this to happen at the time that it happened so that we might focus on the first day of the first month for a reason. It is the time to begin to set in order, to set things up, to cleanse and prepare for the Passover. Had this not happened in the way that it did, and at the time that it did, I would not have been made aware of the first day of the first month in the way that I have, nor would I have given that Bible study at the very beginning of the first day of the first month involving these scriptures. Nor would I probably be talking about this today. I would be continuing and winding up one of the two or three series that I started and have not yet finished. But it has been very heavy upon my mind, and I think for a good reason, the first day of the first month. And what these people went through in the first month here in Numbers 19 and 20 appears to me to be very important for us. If you brought up the congregation of the eternal into this wilderness that we should, we and our cattle should die here, and wherefore have you made us to come up out of Egypt? Why did we leave our homes wherever we were? To bring us into this evil place, this waste howling desert. It is no place of seed or of figs or of vines or of pomegranates. Neither is there any water to drink. They were in a big-time bad attitude here. Big time. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly into the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And they fell upon their faces. And the glory of the eternal appeared unto them. So the people approached the first month and the Passover with a really lousy attitude. Apparently they had not examined themselves. Apparently they had not put themselves in the right attitude in the first month, but were in a discouraged, frustrated, 
mean, rebellious attitude toward God and toward Moses and Aaron. But God was going to do something about it. And his glory appeared to Moses and Aaron. And he said, take the rod, verse 8, and gather the assembly together, you and Aaron your brother, and speak to the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth its water, and you shall bring forth to them water out of the rock. Christ is the rock, from him comes good teaching and good water, good doctrine, and symbolism. So you shall give the congregation and their beasts drink. And Moses took the rod from before the eternal as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and the beast also, but God wasn't happy. He said, I told you to speak to the rock, and you smote it. I think I just had an inspiration this very moment. I've read this many times. But I think I understand something I never understood before. This became the waters of Meribah, a strife in verse 13, because they strove with God and with Moses and with Aaron and had a rebellious attitude. Now, let's consider a thought here. What does he tell them to do? Here now, you rebels. Well, wait a minute. We'll go back where God told them, take the rod and gather the assembly together. The rod represented authority. And speak to the rock before their eyes, and it'll give forth its water. Now, are we told to go forth to Christ to speak to the rock? Yes, we are. We are to communicate with him on a regular basis. Speak to the rock. Are we supposed to smite the rock? What did the Romans do? The Pharisees do. They smote our rock with rods, with staves. But by his stripes we might be healed. I think that puts an entirely new cast upon this. We are to speak to our rock and get good teaching and good water from him. But we had better not strike him. The Gentiles struck him. The unconverted, unrepentant Jews struck him. That's not our job. When you consider that symbolism, now I understand a little more why God was so upset with Moses for striking the rock. Will you bite the hand that feeds you? If we approach the Passover in an unworthy, unrepentant, unexamined approach, then his stripes and his death are upon us. Do not strive with the Lord. Do not strive in attitude. Would it be easy for any one of us to say, well, how come Fred died? Or Andy or Dale or Dennis? 
I do not believe God brought us out here to die, brethren. But nowhere did he say some of us would not. And maybe some death that we suffer is here to instruct us not to have the attitude of the Israelites. You brought us out here to die. You haven't given us the water we want. This isn't a very good place to raise pomegranates, figs, and whatever else it talks about here, a place of seed or for gardens. What are you doing, God? Did you bring us out here to die? Why aren't you blessing us? An attitude of strife, of rebellion toward God. And then we have a death to underline that. Because it would be easy to fall into that attitude and that approach. But maybe God's being very general, loving, and merciful with us as a whole by using a disease, a sickness of this world, allowing it to happen to one of us and him to die just before the first month began. And to remind us of Numbers 20 and what our attitude ought to be. Now, I told Fred, and some of you did, that I didn't think what God was doing with him was without purpose. Now, I hoped that God would raise him up and heal him, and it might be a dramatic event to show who God is. And I have not abandoned that hope as a possibility. It may yet happen. Because God has done that in other ages at different times to show who he was. So there is always that possibility. Most would think I'm a loony for even mentioning such a thing, but it's in the Bible, is it not? God has done it before, has he not? Could he do it again when he so chooses? Yes, he could very easily. But is there something we need to learn? That we need to approach our rock in this time just before we keep the Passover. Wow, I'm just getting started again. Well, let's move on. I think this is a very, very important passage. Um, they crossed the Jordan, and uh, maybe I'll skip over those that just have to do with Passover and departing Ramses. Joshua 4.19, they crossed the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, went into the promised land. That's also the time that the land was chosen, was on the tenth day of the first month. Who will lead us into the promised land? Christ himself, very obviously. So they went into the land on the tenth day of the first month, having just selected the Passover lamb, who would lead them into forgiveness and redemption. First uh, Chronicles 12:15 mentions the same thing, that as they entered the promised land, their enemies ran from them. God says he is going to make his people in Micah 4 and in Isaiah, I can't quite remember, 41 I think it is, that he'll make them sharp threshing instruments and that our enemies will flee before us and that we will stand against the Assyrian when he comes into our land with seven, even eight principal men. Not just two, but a bigger, broader picture than that. So there's much to show that in the first month, 
he will begin to fight our battles for us, that he will begin to take the lead. That's a very important passage in First Chronicles 12, 15 from that standpoint. But I want to go on to Second Chronicles and focus on that perhaps a little more at the moment with the time that I have. And I may go over because I don't speak next week. I want to be sure that we have some things very firmly in mind here as we approach the Passover and perhaps understand it in a better way than we have in the past. And that God gave us this information in time by the first day of the month. And we approached it on the very beginning of the first day of the first month at Bible study Thursday evening. So he had the information to us at the beginning of the time that I think that he intended us to begin to formally examine ourselves. Let's go to Hezekiah, uh, Hezekiah, the second Chronicles 29 about Hezekiah. He began to reign when he was 25 years old. Uh, verse 2, he did that which was right in the sight of the eternal according to all that David his father had done. He, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, opened the doors of the house of the eternal and repaired them. Now, it doesn't say here that it was the first day of the first month, but it's the first year of his reign in the first month. Notice what he does. He opened the doors of the house of the eternal and repaired them. Now, are we the house of God? Are, the, are we the temple of the Lord? Does he come and dwell in us and refer to us in that fashion? Yes, he does. Here again, I think we have the symbolism that Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians 11. But in the first month, he began to repair the doors of the temple of God. The door of our mind, the door of the temple, your mind that God dwells in in heart, or your eyes, your ears, the way you take in information. And he tells us in Isaiah, hear no evil, see no evil. We need to begin to repair the doors, the portals whereby evil comes into our hearts and minds. Get rid of the covetousness of the things of this world and focus on the things of God's world. And he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them together in the east street. And he said to them, hear me, you Levites, sanctify or set apart now yourselves and sanctify or set apart the house of the eternal God of your fathers and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. First month, open the doors, clean the filth out of the sanctuary of the Spirit of God. For our fathers have trespassed and done that which was evil in the eyes of the eternal our God and have forsaken him and have turned away their faces. Doesn't it say our first father has sinned there in Isaiah. I forget the exact passage. I think it was referring to Herbert Armstrong. Now, he was a man of God, but there were things that began to happen under his administration that were not good. And we fell into Laodiceanism and lack of wholeheartedness before God. Another story we've covered many times. So, he turned his face from us and our sin and spewed us out of his mouth. And now in the first month, we have here the symbolism of cleaning the filth out. Get rid of it. Cleanse the sanctuary. 
They've done evil in the eyes of the Eternal, our God, and have forsaken Him, and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Eternal, and turned their backs. Verse 7, Also they've shut up the doors with a torch, and have put out the lamps, and have not burned incense. What about the ten virgins that don't have no oil in their lamps? All those references in the New Testament come right back to these Old Testament passages. They've not offered burnt offerings in the holy place unto the God of Israel. We're lacking in our prayers and the fervency of those prayers. We're lacking in our love and our fervency of love toward each other. We're lacking in our fervency in love to God. Wherefore, the wrath of the Eternal is upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has delivered them to trouble, to astonishment, and to hissing, as you see with your eyes. For lo, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. I think it says in Isaiah 51 that the young bulls lie at the head of the streets. Then, that is, those young men who should have been taking leadership in the church, and they have not been doing so. Same thing here, and that's a prophecy of the end time church there in Isaiah 51. Have we not fallen by the spiritual sword and pestilence and famine in the church? Is not our nation on the very edge of falling into famine, pestilence, and the sword? Yes. Both spiritually and now physically happened to the people of Israel. Verse 10. Hezekiah says, Now it is in my heart. This is a matter of the heart. Not just a matter of, well, I must comply with certain things, keep the Sabbath and the holy days. This is an affair of the heart. It is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. Doesn't he say that he will turn his wrath away and begin to respond to us and turn his face back to us when we turn to him with our whole heart? In Jeremiah 25, 29, yes it does. My sons, be not now negligent. Do not neglect to examine yourself, as Paul put it, in the first month before the Passover. For the Eternal has chosen you. Are we not his called out chosen ones? To stand before him. Is he not calling out a people and ultimately a remnant, a 10% of his people in the end time? To stand before him. To stand and see the salvation of the eternal. I mentioned the other night that we seem to be in that kind of a position. We have things in front of us like the Red Sea that we don't know how to handle. We don't know. We've got a village built. The villages have to be built. Maybe seven. A temple has to have its foundation laid. The walls of Jerusalem must be built back. And there seem to be those things on every side that beset us that do not allow that. And now we have the collapse of the world from behind us, and we're going to soon have the destroyer of the Gentiles on our tails to try to stop us just as Pharaoh and the Egyptians did at the Red Sea. Is it a time to try to turn and make peace with Egypt? with the sin and the culture of this world? 
and take the number of the beast and all those things that are about to befall us? Or is it time to stand still and see the salvation of the eternal? When there's no place to go, he is going to open the Red Sea. And the things he's going to do with you and me, if we turn to him with our whole heart, he says in Jeremiah, will make the Red Sea a distant memory, if a memory at all. Jeremiah 31, I think it is. Be not negligent. The Eternal has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister to him and burn incense. Worship him. He tells us at the end time to be of good courage, to fear not, to work. And one other thing doesn't come to mind. Be strong, I said. Then they arose and cleansed the house of the eternal, verse 15. And the priest went into the inner part of the house of the eternal to cleanse it. Not just the outward appearance and cleaning the outside of the cup, as Paul, as Christ told the Pharisees, but clean the inside of it. You might be a white and beautiful mausoleum or sepulcher on the outside, but inside with a stink and rot of men's bones. It is not the outside appearance. That's hypocrisy. The cleansing our insides, our innermost thoughts and minds that are important. And they cleansed it and brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the eternal under the court of the house of the eternal. And the Levites took it to carry it out abroad to the book Kidroth. Now they began on the first day of the first month to sanctify. Well, that tells you right there then. It does come down to it. But when they did it, it was on the first day of the first month. And on the eighth day of the month came they to the porch of the eternal, so they sanctified the house of the eternal eight days. And in the sixteenth day of the first month, they made an end. They couldn't get it done by Passover. It took them until the sixteenth day to get all the filth and evil and uncleanness out of the temple. Now, should they have gotten it done by the 14th? Well, yeah, it would have been a lot better to keep the Passover. But there was so much filth and rot, they didn't get it all done in 14 days. You know, sometimes you estimate how long it will take to do a job, and it takes longer than you thought. They began diligently on the first day of the first month to cleanse the temple, and they didn't get it all done. Too bad. Then they went into Hezekiah the king and said, We've cleansed all the house of the eternal, got the crop done, and the altar of burnt offering with all the vessels thereof, and the showbread table with all the vessels thereof. We've got them prepared and cleansed and sanctified. Well, what did they do? Chapter 30, verse 2. For the king had taken counsel of the princes and all the congregation of Jerusalem to keep the Passover in the second month. So the second Passover was instituted. If for some reason, God says, well, let's, let's read it on, read on. For they could not keep it at that time because the priests had not sanctified themselves sufficiently, neither had the people gathered themselves together to Jerusalem. And the thing pleased the king and all the congregation. 
come. We have a job to do, I think, beginning on the first day of the first month, to get ourselves cleansed as much as at all possible and filled out by Passover, at least to examine ourselves and see what is there. Then we keep the Passover in a worthy, correct attitude, humble and meek, realizing we are far from perfect. Then we have seven days of unleavened bread to put sin out. Because God realizes that even though we start and we begin to examine ourselves, we will not have accomplished it. And therefore we need a continuing sacrifice in Christ, not in the Passover lamb that died and he passed over that one night in symbolism and it was over. But no, we need a continuing sacrifice. And we need to continue to cleanse ourselves. So he gives us seven days of unleavened bread to continue that process. But Christ makes us clean on the 14th. But he shows us we need to continue to grow to overcome. Let's uh, pick up one thing here more. Verse 17, for there were many in the congregation that were not sanctified. Therefore, the Levites had the charge of the killing of the Passovers for everyone that was not clean to sanctify them to the eternal. For a multitude of the people, even many of Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet did they eat the Passover otherwise than it was written. Now, didn't we read back there in the unclean in Numbers 19 that you were to begin the cleansing process and they checked it on the third day and if you didn't, show cleansing on the third, then by the seventh you were still declared unclean. Interesting how this plays out. They had not cleansed themselves, yet did they eat the Passover otherwise than it was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, The good Lord pardon everyone that prepares his heart to seek God, the eternal God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. The eternal hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. I find that very interesting. They did not complete the process. We fall short, don't we, brethren? I do, you do, we all do. But Hezekiah prayed to God. And God accepted that prayer and showed mercy, for his mercy endures forever and forgave them anyway. So we need to prepare our hearts. We need to turn in these 14 days coming to Passover, beginning, I believe, with the first day. This is the second day now. But we did address it on the first day, didn't we? And if we come up short, we keep it in the right attitude. We can depend upon Christ our Savior to forgive us and wash away our sins. This is so very, very encouraging. Uh, my, how long do I have left on there? Oh, somebody had a long sermonette. Okay. We're going to finish this. Hang on. Let's go to Ezra. I, I just have to do this. I, I think it is so important. Uh, Ezra, where am I looking for? Verse chapter 6. 
Now we know, based on Haggai and Zechariah, that the building of the temple in the end time is a key issue for God's people. And Ezra and Nehemiah give the story of the building of the temple and of the building of the walls of Jerusalem. So the story here in Ezra is very pertinent to you and me today and to the end time church. So let's understand this. Going to chapter 6, there are a few references to the first month in Ezra. Chapter 6, and here I want verse 19. The children of the captivity kept the Passover upon the first 14th day of the first month. Goes on down to show that they, verse 21, uh, had separated themselves to them from the filthiness of the heathen of the land to seek the eternal God of Israel, did eat and kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the eternal had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Is it interesting there that they kept the Passover, that they did truly seek God, and that he blessed them, and then turned their enemies to their strength. Now their commission was to build a temple, as is ours. Does that make the Passover key? Does it make the forgiveness and the favor of God a very important key? I think that it does. Let's go to Ezra 7, here verse 9. Now this is speaking of Ezra who had been given permission by Artaxerxes to go and to do the job of the temple in Jerusalem. <clears throat> Let's see. Verse 8, he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king, for upon the first day of the first month began he to go up from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon it. Now, he left Babylon on the first day of the first month to begin to truly do God's work, to get there so that he could. Now, are we to be coming out of Babylon? Or do we examine ourselves and to see how much Babylonian culture and tradition and habit we still have in every facet of life and how much it has affected us? That was the day, first day of the first month, he left Babylon. Now, he journeyed for four months away from Babylon. But the formal leaving was on the first of the first. So is that the time of the year that we should formally set ourselves to begin the examination of how much Babylon is in us and to begin to depart from it? I find it interesting as an aside here, it took him four months to get to Jerusalem. I did calculate this one time based on that Babylon at the Euphrates and where that Jerusalem in the Middle East is, and I think, as I recall, I don't remember for sure, but it was about a day and a, about a mile and a half a day he'd have gone if it had taken, not counting Sabbaths, that it would have taken him 
to get to Babylon. It's not very far. It's not a four-month walk, walk by any means. Not if you walk 10, 15, 20 miles a day. Four months is enough to have gone from that Babylon by ship to this land, the original Jerusalem. You could do it in four months by sailing ship without a problem. Especially if God gives you good weather. Anyway, I came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was the seventh year of the king. Verse 9, uh, oh, he began to go. I, I want to verse 10. For Ezra has prepared his heart to seek the law of the eternal and to do it. So not only did he physically depart from Babylon on the first day of the first month, but he had prepared his heart. Interesting we come back to that everywhere we go, don't we? There it is. Not only to seek the law of the eternal, not just to have lip service, as we mentioned, about cleaning the outside of the cup or the looking like the mausoleum, but being full of dead men's bones and a filthy cup inside, not just to consider it, to accept to do it with lip service, but to actually do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. So we find the same approach here on the first day of the first month that we've already been reading about as we go through this context. Chapter 8, verse 31. Then we departed from the river Ahava, or Ahava it is, on the twelfth day of the But God wanted Israel to be pure. Now, in the Old Testament, he used physical marriage and physical birth and wanted Israel to stay away from and not intermarry with the Gentiles around them because they would cause them to depart from God and his ways, even as Solomon married strange or Gentile wives, and they turned his heart from God. So God had said, don't do that. Now, the people had turned from God, and they had been in Babylon 70 years and had gone astray. Now, God took them there in captivity because they had sinned. And when they got into Babylon, they just continued to sin and got worse. Now, is there a warning there when God tells us to come out of Babylon and we don't make the changes and just continue to sin and maybe get worse? That's scary. So God wanted to make a very strong, poignant point to them. And they had to divorce, separate from all those wives and their children. Now I know that those men must have truly loved a lot of those women. They must have had great feeling and emotion for them. They had married them. They'd had children with them, and I'm sure they had deep feeling and care and love for those children. They were their children. But God said, separate from those wives and those children. Now Christ himself told us through Luke that we would have to be willing to give up land and homes, father, mother, brother, sister, husbands, wives, whatever, and come and follow him. That is an extension of this right here. We have to be willing to give up any and everything 
that might cause us not to be able to follow our God. That's a tall order, is it not? It's something that some of us, right now, today, are wrestling with. When and how to do that very thing. It's emotional. It's personal. It's hard. You love your husband. You love your wife. You love your children. You. Would it be hard to turn and walk away to serve God instead? William said, well, God told me to obey my husband. Yes, he did. But he told you to obey your heavenly husband above your physical husband. That's a no-brainer. I won't say it's not a no-emotioner, but it's a no-brainer. God has to be first. Despite our feelings, despite our emotions, our very real emotions, I understand that. I'm not belittling. But we have to turn to God with our whole heart. That's what he's after. And then he will turn to us. He says, when you do it, is there a better time than now? It was a time of much rain. It was very difficult for them to accomplish the separating. It says, uh, they gathered together in verse 9, and there was great rain. Now, does God tell us that in the first month we'll have the former and the latter rain? I think that the physical rain that came at this time, when they were trying to begin to truly separate in a way that God told them they had to do. Does God want us to make a separation from this world at a time when he might begin to give us the former and the latter rain in the first month? Is this just coincidental? Now, when it's rainy outside, it's hard to go out and accomplish anything and to get work done. And it was hard for them to line all these people up and sort out the genealogies and, and write it all down and see who had to separate. Verse 11, Now therefore make confession to the eternal God of your fathers and do his pleasure and separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives. Do we have strange wives in the culture of this world? Are we married to this world and its ways? If so, we need a divorce. Divorce ourselves. Separate ourselves from this world. All the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, As you have said, so must we do. But the people are many, and it is a time of much rain, and we are not able to stand without, neither is this a work of one or day or two. It's hard, isn't it? Isn't it hard for us to separate from this world and put away our strange wives? For we are many that have transgressed in this thing. Haven't we all? been a part of this culture and married to it. Let now our rulers of all the congregation stand, and let all them which have taken strange wives in our cities come at appointed times, and with them the elders of every city and the judges thereof, until the fierce wrath of our God for this matter be turned from us. It wasn't just a matter of complying, it was a matter of God's wrath against them. God has been angry with us and turned his face from us because we have been part and parcel with this world. 
And we've had trouble giving it up, have we not? We still do. We want to eat its things, enjoy its delicacies, its filthy entertainment, its lousy music, which causes wrong feelings and emotions and leads to fornication and adultery and drug use. We won't give it up, will we? What's it going to take? When will we get serious? When will we turn to God with our whole heart? Not just our lips and be filthy inside. What's it going to take for me? For you. It's not an easy matter in this great rain. Many things that get in the way. Many things. I'm my own worst enemy. I get in my own way way too much. I think things I should not think. Sometimes I do things I shouldn't do. And it's hard for me not to do those things. It's very hard for me not to think those things sometimes. And you're in the same boat. What does it take? We had a death. Does that sober us? Will it take more? What will it take? I don't know what it will take. God only knows what it will take. For you and me to turn our hearts to Almighty God wholeheartedly instead of lackadaisically. We need to be examining ourselves before Passover. Verse 17. And they made an end with all the men that had taken strange wives by the first day of the first month. They got the separation done, but I suspect that the heart, the mind, the emotions, the feelings for those wives, those children, took a while to get under control and corral. Would not have been easy. We separated from the world by coming here. But our emotions, our feelings, still out there with the world in a lot of ways, the things we like and we're married to, should we examine that and try to straighten those things out in these two weeks before Passover? God pronounced plagues on on Israel at times for their disobedience. Even the sin of one man, Achan, caused thousands of people to die. Because Israel would not turn with their hearts to God. This is a serious business. God wants a people, brethren, that will stand and see his salvation. He wants a people who will not fear Satan and the New World Order 
and the Gentiles. He wants a people who will put him first in their hearts and minds and lives. He wants a people who will stand. Be of good courage. Fear not. Be strong. And work. And he's going to have for himself that people. And I guess only he knows what it's going to take to get us there. And those whom he will call to help us. When will we die, O Israel? When will we repent? When will we get our focus entirely upon God? Esther 3.7 shows that Haman cast lots beginning on the first day of the first month. Cast lots for 13 days and then got the decree to kill Israel. Perhaps the Pony Express began the journey to deliver those messages from the king on the 14th day of the first month. Just as in Egypt, if they did not have the blood of the lamb over the doorposts, the firstborn died. The symbolism of the Bible is so close throughout, the same story everywhere you go. And the Passover is approaching. Is this the year in the first month that God will begin to bless his people? I don't know that. I suppose it could have a whole lot to do with whether we have cleansed ourselves and examined ourselves and found ourselves unworthy and pleaded for mercy by the 14th day of the first month. Ezekiel 29. Verse 17, Ezekiel 29. And it came to pass in the seventh and twentieth year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, the word of the eternal came to me, say. So God came specifically to Ezekiel on 1-1, New Year's Day. And he told him, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, caused his army to serve a great service against Tyre. Every head was made bald and every shoulder was peeled, yet he has no wages nor his army for Tyrus for the service that he had served against it. So Nebuchadnezzar was doing a job for God, and God had not honored him or repaid him for doing that job. So he said, I've given him the land of Egypt for his labor, wherewith he served against it, because they worked for me, says the eternal God. So God says, even if a Gentile king will be his servant and do what he wants done, he will be rewarded and blessed for it, even as we know Cyrus will do the pleasure of God. He's a Gentile king in one sense, or represents that. But he has a job to do in helping prepare the temple in Jerusalem. And God says he'll get it done. And he'll probably reward him for it. Interestingly here it says, verse 21, In that day will I cause the horn of the house of Israel to butt forth. 
not just reward a Gentile king for what he does in service of God, but he also caused the horn of the house of Israel to butt forth. And I will give you the opening of the mouth in the midst of them. Are we silenced today? Can we preach today to any wide audience? No. Will we be able to in the future? Yes. And they shall know that I am the Eternal. Do we not read in Isaiah 52, just before the Passover, the arm of the Lord will be made bare and strong before the world. And that God is going to make himself known. And even in Isaiah 45, when it talks of Cyrus, he says that the things that are done there will cause the world to know that God is God. And this message came on the first day of the first month of the year. How interesting. But God says his people's horn will bud as Aaron's almond stick budded. And that as a result of what happens, they'll know that he is the eternal. It says the same thing in Isaiah 52 before the Passover in Isaiah 53. Is that interesting, or what? Chapter 30, verse 20. Verse 19. Thus will I execute judgment in Egypt, and they shall know that I am the Eternal. And it came to pass in the eleventh year, in the first month, in the seventh day of the month, that the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I'll not continue with that. There's, there's a story here. But they're going to know that God is the eternal. As it goes on down and says that several times in the rest of this passage. So what God does in the first month, I think we're beginning to pin down. The first month is a very, very important time. Uh, chapter 45. This will harken back to Numbers 19 and 20, so I want to spend a little bit of time here. Ezekiel 45 Verse 18, Thus says the eternal God, In the first month, in the first day of the month, you shall take a young bullock without blemish and cleanse the sanctuary. Now this was not to keep the Passover, this was the first day of the first month, and that was the day that they were to take a bullock and offer it as an offering to God and to cleanse the sanctuary. A formal cleansing in preparation for Passover. Is that what Paul was referring back to? says the same thing, basically, and we covered it in Numbers 19 and 20. And the priest shall take of the blood of the sin offering and put it upon the post of the house. We are the house of God, our bodies, our minds, and the church itself. And upon the four corners of the settle of the altar and upon the posts of the gate of the inner court, so shall you do the seventh day of the month for everyone that errs and for him that is simple, so shall we reconcile the house. Now, Numbers 19 did talk about the cleansing of someone who was unclean by whatever means, whether touching a dead body or whatever. They were to be checked on the third day and to be cleansed by the seventh day. So he says here, this is an end-time prophecy in Ezekiel, to begin on the first day of the first month and hopefully be cleansed by the seventh day of the month for everyone that makes mistakes, sins, and for him that is simple, or doesn't understand, or is ignorant of, ignorant of some things. 
God has mercy. He requires much when we know much, and less when we know little. So somebody that makes a mistake or doesn't understand, God has mercy on. In the first month and the fourteenth day of the month, you shall have the Passover, a feast of seven days, unleavened bread shall be eaten. And upon that day shall the prince prepare for himself and for all the people of the land a bullock for a sin offering, and then the seven days, and so on. So again here, we have a very important beginning on the first day of the first month. I'll skip over Daniel 4. It was in the first month there that Daniel uh, Daniel 10, he had a vision from God. An angel appeared before him. Uh, that happened in the first month. Uh, I don't know exactly how to tie that in with this, except that it was a, an important occurrence in the first month. I think it was on the 28th day in that case. It was after Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread were over. Or was it the 24th? might have been the 24th. The 9th and 24th is a day, a day, that God says he's going to bless us in Haggai. So we have one more verse then, one more place that the first month is mentioned, and that's in Joel 2. And here we have the same theme. This is very much an end-time prophecy. It has to do with the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, and the preparations therefore, or for that. And he says, blow the trumpet, sound an alarm. We've been through this. Verse 12, also now says the eternal turn even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and rend your heart and not your garments and turn to the eternal your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and relents him of the evil. We fasted just recently in terms of approaching this first month, did we not? It's what he tells us to do. Who knows if he will return and relent? Wouldn't it be great this month, brethren, if God turned his face to us and began to bless? Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it wash away a lot of sorrow? Blow the trumpet in Zion, verse 15. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Forget about the normal things you do in life and day-to-day cares. Now, you have to do the daily things. You have to go to work. But he says, make more important and above that the spiritual. Do what you have to do, but be sure that you emphasize and put first in your focus the spiritual. But the ministers weep between the porch and the altar and pray for God to spare his people. The winds of war are blowing around the earth. The winds of the economic disaster are blowing around the earth. Do we not need delivered from that as it comes down? Yes, we do. Will it happen before next Passover? Probably so. Do we need God's help beginning now? I think we do. If not, it's going to be a real terrible year ahead before the next first month comes. Verse 29, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the eternal will do great things. Who will pay attention to that? Be not afraid, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness. God has brought us to the wilderness. New spring, the spiritual wilderness, it's a physical wilderness. For the tree bears her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Compare that with Israel there and saying, this isn't a land of seed, this isn't a place to have fruit, this isn't a place to have crops. Why have you brought us out here to die? 
The New World Order people are going to start killing Christians pretty soon. Is it serious business or not? Be glad then, you children of Zion. That's the only ones that are in place to be glad when all these things are coming down that Joel talks about. Rejoice in the eternal your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately or in measure. We've been blessed, yes, but in measure, not abundantly. And he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The floors shall be full of wheat and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore all the time of famine and pestilence spiritually and perhaps physically that is about to come on the land. You'll be eaten plenty and be satisfied. Afterward then, he says, verse 28, he'll pour out his spirit on all flesh and we'll have dreams and visions and so on. Probably at Pentecost as it was in Acts 2. The first month though, the former and latter rain comes. Then at Pentecost, an opening and an outpouring of the spirit in a way that it has never been experienced before. Probably more so than Acts 2 because that was only a forerunner of a bigger power of God being shown at the end time, the time that Joel was really talking about, not just the first fulfillment. Is the first month important? Do we need to begin examining ourselves on the first day of that month and continue to do so and then take the Passover with the right spirit and attitude and pray to God that he began to forgive us, wash away our sins, and one day suddenly come to his temple and bless it. Does it make any sense that it would be any day but Passover? Preparation for 14 days and then the event. Is that not when he delivered them? He forgave them in Egypt and delivered them? Is it not when Christ died and delivered us all as our Savior? I can't imagine God picking July 13th or whatever. It seems to fit the scripture that it would come at Passover time. Is this the year? The events are there. The right month is there. The right preparation running up to it, I think we have seen today. Is this the year? God only knows that. But I think it behooves us to prepare the best we can, maybe prepare for Passover better than we ever have as individuals ever done it. Is that possible? Can we do that? Can we make an attempt, an effort to turn to God with our whole heart and to make this the best preparation time that we individually have ever done? I think that is within the ability of each and every one of us to think back and say, how much did I prepare before? And set ourselves to turn to God and prepare better than we ever have. That's a reachable goal. And then hope that in mercy, God relents. And that this is the year. I hope it is. If it is not, we have a very, very hard year ahead of us. And that may be required, I don't know. But I think the chances are pretty good that if we do our part, this may be the year.
I'm not going to stick my neck out and say it is. I don't know that. But he's brought us some very strong lessons here, the death of one of our friends and brothers, to focus us so that we might have an opportunity to do what's right. Now let's not let that death be wasted. Let's make it important. Let's make it help us do what we need to do to serve our God in heaven. I think Paul was referring back to these scriptures about the first day of the first month and moving forward from there and examining ourselves to take the Passover. I think he was aware of these, and I think that's what he was referring to. So I think that's an element in our understanding that we've missed before. And God is so merciful, he gave it to us in time. I'm just emphasizing it on the second day. But we broached it right as the first day of the first month began. Was that by inspiration of God? I think so. Let's take his inspiration and run with it, brethren. Stand. See the salvation of the eternal.